Good evening and welcome to the September 2022 edition of Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Morelia. Well, over the years, we've done a number of shows featuring the stories of gay police officers and firefighters, but rarely have I run across a story of a transgender female firefighter. This month, Bobby Scopa released her new memoir titled Both Sides of the Fireline, a memoir of a transgender firefighter. Now, you might be thinking that this story is one of tragedy and oppression, but think again. Bobby, who's now 67 years old, has had an incredible and successful career in the fire service, first serving as a man and now as a woman. Her story is really remarkable and quite touching, and she'll share some of it with us tonight, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, September 25th, 2022. I love to change the This is Greg Morale with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of September 25th, 2022. Curtis Reed has been named Chief of Staff at the National Security Council, making him the first out member of the LGBTQ community to hold that post and any senior leadership position at the National Security Council. Reed is currently Senior Directory for Multilateral Affairs at the Council. He will succeed Johannes Abraham, who was confirmed by the Senate in August as ambassador to the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. Reed has been a foreign service officer with the State Department for nearly 20 years, and he's worked in Algeria, East Timor, Indonesia, Iraq, and Israel, and developed a specialization in the Middle East before serving as a political advisor to the U.S. mission to the United Nations. In April, Reed addressed a meeting of impact the LGBT Employee Resources Group at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. And at that event, Reed urged participants to decide at the beginning of their careers to be their full selves. He explained that the only part is their personal decision of when and how to come out in the workplace. He urged participants not to alter mannerisms at work or change the way that they behave for a professional environment. He explained that people are their best and most effective when they are being themselves. And the National LGBT Organization Human Rights Campaign has announced that its new president is going to be Kelly Robinson. Robinson is the first black woman to lead the organization. Robinson said in a press release, quote, I'm honored and ready to lead the HRC and are more than three million member advocates as we continue working to achieve equality and liberation for all LGBTQ people, end quote. Robinson worked as a community organizer during Barack Obama's first presidential campaign in 2008. Since then, she's worked in organizing and eventually becoming the executive director of Planned Parenthood's Action Fund. She also served as the vice president of advocacy and organizing at Planned Parenthood. Both organizations fight for reproductive choice, access to health care, and women's equality. HRC's previous president, Alfonso David, was fired last September following allegations by the Attorney General of New York that he was tangentially involved in a conspiracy to silence a woman who had accused former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo of sexual harassment. And here in California, a new law will help LGBTQ veterans who were discharged under Don't Ask, Don't Tell access benefits. Assembly Bill 325 was signed by Governor Gavin Newsom last Saturday and creates the Veterans Military Discharge Upgrade Program. With that, LGBTQ people who were other than honorably discharged due to their gender or sexual orientation can more easily correct their status. In a recorded statement, Governor Newsom celebrated the law's passage and explained that after President Barack Obama rescinded Don't Ask, Don't Tell, the Department of Defense created a way for veterans who had become victims of the policy to update their records and reestablish their benefits. 
but many veterans sadly don't know or can't even access this important process. The governor said we're taking steps to fix this and we're laying the groundwork for a brand new grant program to help those heroes access a full suite of benefits that they've earned and they deserve. And here in the Bay Area last week, a San Francisco Bay Area man was convicted of threatening the life of gay Senator Scott Weiner. In January, 51-year-old Eric Triana of San Ramon sent a message to Senator Weiner via the senator's constituent website stating, quote, Vax my kids without my permission and expect a visit from me and my rifle, end quote. Triana signed the threat Amendment 2nd and listed his address as the Moscone Center in San Francisco. He was later arrested and charged in April. A jury in Contra Costa County convicted the father of three of the threats on Wiener's life, two counts of possessing assault weapons, two counts of manufacturing or assembling unregistered firearms, and two counts of having a concealed firearm in a vehicle. He was found not guilty of a criminal threat of death or great bodily injury. Triana is scheduled to be sentenced for the crimes on September 29th. Prosecutors linked Triana's threats in January to a bill that Senator Weiner had introduced in Sacramento days before that would have allowed minors 15 and older to seek medical care, including COVID vaccines, without their parents' permission. Senator Weiner withdrew the bill shortly after due to lack of support. Police traced Triana's message to a computer he used at work in Pleasanton, south of his home in San Ramon. In addition to his computer, a search warrant turned up an unregistered AR-15 rifle, nine loaded magazines, and a nine millimeter ghost gun. For Audi Radio News, I'm Greg Morelli. When you think about firefighters and the history of the fire service, you aren't likely to think about women or transgender people. It's a profession steeped in straight cisgender tradition. And while that's changed in the last couple of decades with the hiring of women, it's pretty rare to hear about a transgender woman working in the fire service. Bobby Scopa started her career as a man and transitioned during her career. You might think her career ended, but just the opposite happened. As a woman, Bobby rose through the ranks of the fire service and has been recognized as a highly skilled leader and talented firefighter. She's now 67 years old, and this month her new memoir was published. It's titled Both Sides of the Fire Line. Bobby, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Greg. This is great to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. And to, uh, I just have to tell you, I, I loved reading your book. It's called Both Sides of the Fire Line, a Memoir of a Transgender Firefighter. I couldn't put it down. Uh, it's a very, very touching and important story. So I'm thrilled to have you here to be able to talk about it. Thanks. Uh, let's start from the beginning. Talk about where you grew up and when you first had a sense that you were a girl. Well, um, I grew up in uh, Arizona and, uh, and uh, uh, I, I knew early on, I knew early on that I was different, that I didn't feel uh, and I hate to use the word normal, but I'm 67. And I'm a I, I'm an old thinking kind of a person, and I I knew I didn't feel normal, and I knew I felt like a girl early on. And I, you know, I can't remember exactly how the age, but it had to have been f around that time I was four. Wow! Because I wasn't getting to do things that I wanted to do with my sister, and I was told to go play with the boys and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So I I had an early sense about who I was. Hmm. Wow. It, it, I always find that so fascinating that today, especially today, that people can pinpoint, they can say back that young at four or five years old, that they already had a sense about there was something different, but they could really put their finger on it. 
you know. Now. Well, I can remember I can remember praying to God when I was little, and I can remember the bed I was going to bed in, praying for God to fix me because mm -hmm. this wasn't right, and I wanted to be able to have my nails painted and let my sure. hair be long and all that. And so it was it was very young. Yeah. And, and is that where you first got a sense of what being transgender is? Well, um, the I knew I wasn't I knew I wasn't right in the sense that my body didn't align with my my mind, but um, early on. But the first time I understood and heard the word transgender or transsexual was when. Um, I was maybe 12 years old and a friend of mine said that their mom had a book about, it was Christine Jorgensen's story that mm. they were describing. And so they were all talking about this book um, where a man became a woman. And I thought, oh my gosh, oh, that's, that's, that's what I could do. You know, so I was maybe 12 or 13 when I first heard that. Um, um, yeah, so because at the time there, there weren't any, out role models, right? There was no Laverne Cox or anybody else that you could identify with. No, you know, and I, I tell a story in the book about um, I was in either high school or college and uh, my mom and I were sitting on the couch after dinner and we were watching, I think it was like Merv Griffin. And I don't remember what year this was. This was a long time ago. It was in the seventies, early seventies. And a woman, a transgender woman um, was being interviewed by Merv Griffin and it was all, and she was, she was beautiful. She was well-spoken and she had written a book, I think, and they were interviewing her. And I watched that whole program, an hour long program. And I started to say something to my mom when it was over. And my mom looked at me and she said, uh, what did she say? Something like, don't even think about it. And I was like, oh, oh interesting. Yeah. She says, don't even think about it. Well, they always say mothers know. Yeah. 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 Uh, I think my mom quite knew quite clearly. We just weren't allowed to talk about it. Yeah. Well, you talk about being attracted to men. Did you ever identify as being gay at any point in your life before transitioning? No. No, because in my mind, you know, I have this dichotomous mind you know, a lot of like maybe a lot of people my age, you know, you're either or, you know, mm -hmm. it's not like these days where there's all these shades of gray. And in my mind, if I had a male body and if I was with a guy, I would be gay. Well, I didn't feel gay. I didn't want to, I didn't want to be a male with a male. Um, and so I felt like I couldn't be with a man unless I was a woman. And um, until you know, until I outwardly started to change uh, a little bit, then I started getting more of a feel uh, for wanting to be with a man, you know, and I don't mean sexually, I just mean in an emotional sense. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, so I never identified as a gay male. And I know everybody's got different experiences with that. There's many trans people who live for years as a gay male, sure. or, but, you know, that was just wasn't my story. Got it. Well, uh, my dad was a 30-year career firefighter, um, and I never really had an interest in the fire service. I was drawn to the law enforcement side of things, uh, public service. What happened to you, Greg, really? 
Well, you know, some say I, I joined the right side of first responders. Um, but, you know, I remember being gay and, and having a very strong sense of who I was. I wasn't out at the time, but I also had this very strong attraction to law enforcement. Um, what drew you to the fire service? I mean, you obviously had a very strong sense about who you were very early on. I imagine your draw to the fire service came in later years. What about it attracted you? You know, that's, that's really interesting. And, and that's a huge part of my life and not that I identify, you know, that that's my identities wrapped up in being a firefighter, but, um, I started as a seasonal firefighter for the Forest Service back in 74. That was my first season. And um, it did multiple things for me. First off, I loved the outdoors. I was a backpacker and a hiker and a camper. And so that was a big part of my life. And so a wildland firefighter, you're hiking, you're backpacking, you're camping. Um, And the excitement of fighting fires is crazy excitement for a 19-year-old kid who doesn't know anything and you get to go out there and you've got air tankers flying overhead and helicopters and you're fighting fire. Man, it's exciting. And at the same time, it provided me what I needed. I needed cover. I needed like I, w- I was a, I, I, you know, I felt like I was an undercover agent and I needed a good cover story. Mm-hmm. And being a firefighter provided me with this macho image. Now, I, I thought I was more macho than maybe people were perceiving me. But in my mind, that was a great way to appear masculine. You know, well, Bobby can't be feminine if she's fighting fires, you know. Mm-hmm. So so that was a good way. So it was exciting. Um, I loved the work. Uh, it, it provided me a cover uh, if people thought I was not masculine enough. Um, so that's that's how I got into it. And then the excitement just kept me coming back because it was so fun. It does get into your system, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. That I can connect with, whether it's a crook or whether it's fire. The adrenaline rush is is pretty, it's hard to beat. It's hard to beat. (laughs) Absolutely is. You talk about in the book uh, what it was like walking into that firehouse for your first job. And you already had a very good sense that you were a woman. uh, And now you're walking into this very hyper-masculinized environment. It must have taken a lot of courage. Well, um, you know, that's interesting, Greg, because um, I, I don't consider it courage per se, um, because at that time in my life, I had no intention of ever transitioning. Um, I had I was married to a woman. I had children. I, I had no thought that I would ever transition. I was going to be tougher than my being transgender. That was always my attitude. I was going to tough it out. You know, I would last, I'd be able to survive as a man. Um, And so putting on that persona of a a firefighter uh, just kind of went with this program I had written for myself. Mm. Um, And, and, you know, and I've had a lot of people say, oh, you were so brave. And I don't consider it I don't consider it brave. It's, it's a matter of survival. And in the firefighting world, especially the wildland firefighting world, if you, if you, have, to get, if you have to get to a, a ridgetop out of a steep canyon in order to get picked up by a helicopter to go home, or if you need to climb up that ridgetop, steep trail, hot, dusty, 
you're exhausted, there's fire coming, you got to get out of there. It's not brave to climb to the ridgetop and do that hard work to get to the ridgetop. It's, and that's how I look at my, my life. Um, it was a matter of survival. I had to make that climb. I had to do the hard work. I had to, I had to do what I had to do to survive. So um, going into that firehouse and um, uh, it was just, it was just more of the same. It was just part of the program. Well, and it's not just the culture of the fire service, or in my case, law enforcement at the time, that was very unwelcoming of anybody other than a cis straight man. Yeah. Uh, the facility itself was not designed for women. It was very much designed for groups of men without any consideration, I would imagine, of a lot of privacy. I remember I did one summer working as a fire dispatcher at a small department. Uh, maybe because I thought fire service was going to be interesting, but it was a great job. But mm -hmm. I remember going to that station, and when I would use the locker room, right. I, I was really uncomfortable walking in there. Yeah. Um, I had a very strong sense I was attracted to men. It was a group-type setting, and I guess some people would say that's like the ultimate fantasy, right? Ah. But it was super uncomfortable for me. What was it like for you? Well, it was uncomfortable but I had been dealing with that discomfort my whole life. In turn, I had older mm -hmm. brothers. My dad was a, a general contractor. I was around this macho environment. I was, mm -hmm. um, I'd been the seasonal firefighter in that environment. Being around the firehouse and the and the close quarters, the, the really what I got from that was a feeling that I was undercover, because I was I was privy to the sights and sounds and the words and the emotions of the guys when they just thought they were talking amongst themselves to guys. And the biggest, uh, I think the biggest uh, takeaway for me was that I, I, was a, I was privy to a lot of thoughts that maybe most women don't get a chance to hear. Um, and it wasn't, you know, the physical aspect of it was, was, a non-issue you know i just avoided i just avoided um uh the guys when everybody was taking showers and stuff um i just didn't want to be around it um yeah yeah i mean you know most guys wouldn't give a second thought to it in that situation but when you know yourself that you have that attraction it almost feels wrong to be there well you know i my my attraction to men um, starts, and I guess maybe this is for a lot of women, my attraction to men starts on this emotional, intellectual level. I don't get excited seeing some naked guy. That's not, mm -hmm. that's not who I am. I have to, I have to have some emotional and, uh, intellectual connection. And that's where the attraction comes from. And so, you know, there were 99% of the guys on the fire department. I didn't have that emotional and intellectual right. attraction. Sure. Well, you had great success uh, as a firefighter. Your career is quite amazing. Uh, talk about that. Well, I have been very, very fortunate. I mean, incredibly blessed in my career. Um, I, I started as a seasonal wildland firefighter, and I did that all through college, and then I graduated from college and I went to work full time and I was doing a combination of natural resource work uh, because the wildland agencies, you know, they, you know, they're managing the natural resources in addition to fighting the fire. So I did that for a while. 
and I was struggling. I was having a hard time uh, maintaining the facade of masculinity. And um, I was a volunteer firefighter on a structural fire department, a fire district. And um, I thought, you know, if I, if I can go to work as a city firefighter, then that'll be much more masculine. And then I'll, that'll keep me, that'll keep me uh, male. And I, it'll be easier for me to, to withstand all the pain and anguish I was going through. So I transitioned to being a, and, and I like the idea of it too. I may I'll be honest. I like the idea of being a, a structural mm-hmm. firefighter. So I, I go do that. I test and I got hired and, um, and I, um, I, I was really good at my job and I, I got promoted relatively quickly. I became a captain. Um, I tested for battalion chief. I was next on the list for battalion chief. Um, but I was married and I was struggling. I mean, I was struggling in that environment to hold on, uh, to hold on to my shell of this facade. And, um, and so my wife at the time, she had a job offer someplace else. And I said, let's do it because I'm, I'm dying here. And uh, I had been on the job for about maybe 12 years by then. And so uh, I went and got my master's degree while we moved. And, and so that just happenstance of going to get my master's degree then set me up for future success. And so when I got divorced, I got hired relatively quickly because I had I had a great fire background and now I had advanced degree and I had a couple bachelor's degrees and so it was a so no planning on my part led to my success I mean hard work yes but no good planning uh it just fell into it and uh, and I I you know I've I'm a I'm a Christian and I believe in the Holy Spirit you know had their hand in this. And, uh, and so I got hired after my master's, I got hired back by the federal wildland agencies and uh, promoted again, pretty quick. And I never mm-hmm. really searched out these promotions. So that's the other thing I, I, I ended up, you know, as a deputy chief on a, well, I, I was a district fire management officer or division chief. And I went to chief two on a national forest and chief one on a national forest and then to the regional office in charge of fire operations for three states for the national forest service and ended up in dc and worked uh for uh, about eight months uh, as a deputy fire director for uh the u.s forest service in dc so an amazing career that i look at and say wow that's that's crazy that it all worked out that way but i can't claim credit for having this plan of how I was going to get there. Right, right. But but what's even more amazing about all of that is you did a good number of those promotions after you transitioned, right? Oh, most of the promotions. My career, my career was so much better after I transitioned. Um, and that's, you know, that's an interesting uh, idea that I explore in the book a little bit. I, I don't know whether my career was so much more successful as a woman in the fire service, which sounds kind of silly or counterintuitive, but uh, it was. And I think in part, it had to do with my comfort. 
so I was, I was able to be more confident as a woman. I was able to be more relaxed. Um, and that's, and I think that's how, uh, my career was so much more successful as a woman than as a man. Mm. So interesting because I get asked what happened to me after I came out in law enforcement. And I can only say that my career exploded into more opportunity than I could have ever imagined. Oh, that's really good to know. And I would have never, ever have guessed that. And I have to imagine the same was for you. Did you ever imagine that you would be so successful in promoting to such high levels after you transitioned? No, never. I, when I trans, well, when I got divorced, that's when I got divorced is when I transitioned. Um, I just wanted to go to work. Uh, and, you know, if you think about the U.S. Forest Service, they have, you know, they have engine, fire engine crews. And during the off season, they go to work off season when it's not fire season and they're burnt, they're doing um, burning piles, we call it, you know, where mm -hmm. the fuels have been piled up. And I just wanted to go to work with my lunch, with my lunch bucket and burn piles and, and, and not, and just keep my head down low. I, I just was so wounded. That's all I wanted to do. And yet I was plucked from those, <laughs> from those jobs into promotions. Um, and I think there might be, you know, a part of it might be that, hey, we got a chance to hire a competent, educated female into this position. You know, I think I think some administrators saw that as a feather in their cap, that they were not only hiring a female, but someone who had all this experience and education. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, I might have had there was might have been some um, benefit at that point as well, being a female firefighter. Sure. Well, there's a theme that runs throughout your book, and that's your appreciation of nature. How did that help you, I'll use the word reconcile, but realize is probably a better word, that you were normal? Well, you know, I, um, it really, you know, I was raised Catholic, of course, and as a kid, you know, you go to church and, you know, the nuns tell you what to believe, uh, what to think. Um but it was really when I was in, in the outdoors that I really uh, felt the presence of God. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of people who are avid outdoors people, backpackers and hikers and that sort of thing, I think whether you, whether you identify it as a, as a, a Christian uh, thought, I think there's some spirituality that many of us feel when we're in the outdoors. And so for me, that's where I got this feeling of uh being tied to the environment and to the creation and um that was my that was my tether early on i mean as a as a 12 13 year old that's where i started feeling really tethered to reality um and uh and it really helped me throughout my life and to this day you know i i um and and here's an interesting story greg that mm -hmm. I was on a fire uh, probably, I don't know, mid-90s, and I met this Indian, uh, this Native American man who was running an engine. He was an engine captain on their fire engine from, from a reservation in New Mexico. And now here I am, I'm probably 40, early 40s, and he's explaining to me, because I asked him how he reconciled his Native American beliefs and cultures with his Catholicism, because he was talking about some uh, 
some holiday that was coming up, some uh, Catholic holiday. And he looked at me like I, like I had a third eye on my forehead and he looked shaking his head. He says, what do you mean? How do I reconcile? He said, it's the great spirit in, in Native American culture. It's the Holy Spirit in Christianity. Um, and he starts going down this list, you know, where did Jesus go for 40 days and 40 nights to prepare and to pray? I said, he goes out in the desert. And he was like, right, that's where the spirit is. And I was like, oh my God. And so that kind of thinking, um, which I didn't have the words to describe when I was younger, um, but that, that thinking really tied me to uh, who I am and my connection to this mm -hmm. world. And so being transgender is kind of like, I mean, it's been a big part of my life, but it really doesn't define me. That, that's not who I am. Um, it's like it's like saying you know you were born with a you know with some other medical problem well that doesn't define you if you were born with some medical problem my what defines me is my faith and my connection to the land mm, i love that i love that let's Thanks. go back to your family for a bit your sister was a pretty important part of your life talk about your yeah. relationship with her well, my sister was nine years older than me. She was the oldest. I have two brothers in the middle. Then I, I was brought up the end there. And, um, um, you know, in many ways, uh, she, she raised me. And not in the sense that my mom wasn't around. My mom, of course, was around. But she and I were really, really close. And, um, um, well, she, uh, we spent a lot of time together. And I, I adored her. And I... I idolized her. I wanted to be like her because, uh, you know, uh, I felt like a girl. She was nine years older than me, a, a young, beautiful woman. And, and as we grew older, you know, I got to be, we got to be, you know, maybe I was 12, 13, 14. Um, she was living at home and we did a lot of things together. Uh, you know, I was into embroidery. Now, I thought I was pretty masculine at the time. You know, I was trying to do masculine things but I loved embroidery and doing the floral uh embroidery work with the colors I was into that she was into cross stitching and we would do our our crafts together and um and and so she was a big part of my life and and to this day my friends from high school who I'm really close with they they talk about her and they they tell stories about Kay my sister that I don't even remember but she was a big part of everyone's life and she passed away when she was uh, 31, I guess mm. it was. And uh, I had just gotten married. And uh, it was devastating. It was devastating. It was devastating to the whole family. She had two little kids, infants. And uh, so obviously devastating to her and her family. But, um, you know, she was my ally. She was my protector. And so when she died, even though I was 22 when she passed away, um, it was, it was a, it was a huge loss because, uh, she understood who I was, although we didn't talk about it because that wasn't something you talked about it, but she would make comments that I knew she understood. And, um, and, and so I, I lost that. It was like the one person who I thought I could, that would be there if I needed her was, was gone. So that was a, that was a tough one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I bet. I bet. I want to go back for a minute and talk about your relationship with your wife. Uh, you had told your wife 
early on that you had a sense that you were a woman. I don't know if that's exact words that you used, but you had... Before we got married. Before we got married, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And and that relationship lasted for quite a while. I mean, you you had kids together, you spent a lot of time together, and then you described an unraveling that took place. Uh, you, You just had reached a point where you couldn't hide anymore. How did you come out? Well, um, first off, you know, I I told the woman who would be my wife before we ever got married. And she asked, are you going to do anything about it? And I said, no, I'm going to be tough. I'm going to be strong and I'm not going to do anything about it. But but as I relate in the book, you know, it's almost as if for me, this is how it feels for me. And I can't say how it's for anyone else, but for me, it was like I had a skin covering me up. And inside the skin was the real me, the woman. And outside the skin was this, was this facade of a male. And as time goes on, as you get older, you know, imagine this covering, this cloth skin that's covering you up. You know, the elbows start to fray and because, you know, that's where the fabric gets worn and and, and then the real you start to peek it out, peek out, you know, your knuckles start to wear out the fabric and, and then your and things are starting to wear out and that skin can only last so long. And so for me, um, coming out wasn't like, I didn't come out one day and say to my friends and coworkers, oh, I'm transitioning. For me, when I left the fire department and went back to grad school, I let my hair grow out a little bit. Because, you know, at the fire department, you had to have regulation short hair back in those days. Mm-hmm. And once I let my hair grow, well, even before this, I mean, I, I was mistaken for female often. And so, but once I let my hair grow, I was mistaken for female all the time. And so, um, on one hand, that can be affirming because people are seeing the real you. On the other hand, it's it's scary and um uh well scary because when that happened when i was around my wife and kids uh my kids seemed to ignore it but it angered my my wife at the time Mm -hmm. and so my coming out was more of a years-long transition that um at one point as i describe in the book you know i'm driving cross country i'm in oklahoma and and i'm i've got roper boots on for your listeners who are cowboys or you know i got roper boots jeans and i've got a big heavy farm jacket on and i'm driving my pickup truck and i'm driving across country and i pull in to get gas at a gas station and I get gas and I go in to use the restroom. I go into the men's room because I was male. And as I'm dressed as I am, a, a guy sees me in the men's room. He says, oh, ma'am, you're in the wrong bathroom. This is the men's room. You're in the wrong bathroom. Hmm. And I turned around and walked out. And I was like, oh, my God, what am I supposed to do? You know, um, I wasn't wearing makeup. I didn't have my nails polished. I had longer hair. Um, And so on that trip, I thought, well, you know what? I'll put on a little lipstick and remove any doubt and and 
start using the women's rooms uh, when I'm traveling. And that's how, and that's really the, that was a definitive trip for me or a time where it's like, well, I guess people are seeing a woman. I guess I'm just going to go with that. That part of the book just fascinated me. Um, it, you know, I think a lot of times people think that the most important part of a transition is sex reassignment surgery, and it really isn't. It's it's all about how a person appears. It's the face. It's that face that the world sees. And I got the sense that the world saw you as a woman, fully as a woman, maybe before you did? Well, you know, I think there's some truth to that. I mean, when I see pictures of me uh, from the old days, um, I see a guy. I don't see I don't see someone who's not male. And yet um, there were often times when I was seen as a female. I was working on, I was on duty, the engine, and, and I was a captain, as a matter of fact. And we're, we're at the grocery store. Like you see a lot of fire station, you know, fire departments, the fire engine goes right. and gets their groceries for the day. And we were at the grocery store and uh, we were just getting ready to go into the checkout line. And one of the guys, some old guy, you know, private citizen, knocks his elbow into into my one of my firefighters you know big guy into his arm and says and he points at me and says hey when did you guys start hiring women now i had short regulation hair but uh i was short and i i never had a masculine shape my shape was always i always had a small waist and big hips and um and of course the guys thought that was hilarious um and when those things happened to me, I was kind of freaked out, um, and I, I thought I was, I thought I was presenting really a very masculine front. And I think you're right. I think to some degree, other people saw it way before I did. Um, and um, yeah, it's kind of a, I don't know, it's kind of a weird story to me to even to. And I lived it, and I still think it's kind of strange. Well, it, and then you got asked out on some dates. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Talk about that. I mean, you were very resistant. You write in the book a couple of examples. It, uh, you were very hesitant to accept those dates. What? Well, you know, um, so there was a... So imagine it's not like uh, I've read other people, you know, they transition, they go into their office, their boss's office on Friday and say, Hey boss, I'm transitioning. I'm going to come back Monday. Uh, you can call me Alice now. You know, I, I didn't have that kind of experience. And so for me, I was just living my life. I was still married. I had graduated. I did my graduate work and graduated. Um, and things were very difficult in my marriage because the more people perceived me as female, the, it, it was very difficult on my on my wife. And so things were stressed. The marriage was coming apart. And um, so a friend of mine who a female friend of mine says, let's go listen to music. Let's let's, you know, take your mind off of things. Let's relax. We're gonna, there's a little band coming to this little club. We'll go listen to music. OK, so listen to the music. I'm enjoying myself. Two guys come and sit down with us and start buying us beers. And instantly I realize, uh oh, they think they think I'm a, I'm a female. And um, and and uh, a guy 
uh, asked me to dance. And I'm like, no, 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 I can't. And that, no, I, this is not, this is a straight bar. This isn't a gay bar. This is, uh, and these are like country, this is a small town. Mm -hmm. These are country boys, you know, and um, it's freaking me out. And, um, and my friend is egging them on, you know, um, and uh, well, this story about my first slow dance with a guy, um, that guy insisted on dancing and I was trying not to make a scene, you know, but he was good natured. And anyway, long story short, I ended up doing a slow dance with this gentleman who was so kind and so nice. And um, it was just one dance, but it freaked me out. I had to leave because it felt so good. Um, mm. It felt, you know, you're being held for the first time. I'm being held in the arms of a guy in a slow dance. And um, uh, it was a feeling like I had found home. Um, and all of a sudden I realized guys are okay. Because up to that point, I didn't like guys because I thought they were a bunch of idiots, <laughs> to, be, to be honest, and no offense, you know, but, you know, they're a bunch of Neanderthals. And I was and I was living in this environment where I was a bunch of macho guys and I thought they were all they were all crazy. But once I was treated, once I started being perceived as a woman and started being treated like a woman then I thought, oh, they're nice. They're nice guys because now they're nicer to me, and um, and that was a that was a turning point in my life. Um, and uh, I was still resistant to dating uh, because at that point I hadn't had surgery, um, and so I wouldn't I wouldn't go out on more than one date. You know, if a guy asked me out, I'd go, but only on one date because, God forbid, um, he finds out that I haven't had my surgery yet. Um, yeah, so that was a, that was a more crazy time in my life during that time where I started dating. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's scary. I mean, we read all stories all the time. I'm sure you had read stories all the time about sure. a lot of violence that happens, uh, in well, those situations. And to this day, I mean, I, I mean, even, you know, I, I don't know, it's been 25 years or so, um, to this day, I really resist dating. I just broke up a year or so ago with a guy that I've been in a relationship for about eight years with. But um, it's so much trouble to date because it, it, as if being our age isn't enough, then I got to put it on this layer. It's like, oh, by the way, you know, <laughs> um, I transitioned, I'm transgender and I was raised as a male and you got to go into all this detail. I feel like I need to because I don't want the guy getting... Um, emotionally attached or me getting emotionally attached and then getting dumped when they find out. Right. So, you know, dating is still, dating is still, uh, difficult. Yeah. It's something, something to navigate for sure. Yeah. Well, one of the yeah. positive stories experiences you had was when you went back for a high school reunion. Love oh, that yeah. story. Uh, <laughs> so if you don't mind share that with us, what, what yeah. happened? This is after you transitioned. Oh, this is years after I transitioned. Um, so I had a, you know, this little Catholic high school I went to was very tight knit. It was a wonderful environment, loving, supportive environment. And our class um, was a tight group within that, within that school. There was about 120 kids in our graduating class. And, and so 
10 year anniversary comes along, um, I'm firmly entrenched in trying to stay male. I've got little kids and, and everything is, you know, everything is status quo, I'll go to the 10 year reunion. Well, by the 20 year reunion, I was, I was unraveling that, that covering that, that fabric covering me up. That was, uh, that was fraying was by 20 years. I was, I was at the end by the 30 year reunion. I had transitioned already and I had, um, I had been, you know, transitioned for quite a few years. I was comfortable in my skin, except, um, the little community of people in our in our class, um, my mom and dad knew them all. Well, my mom and dad quit speaking to me after my divorce because the divorce had to do with my gender stuff. So um, I didn't go to the 30 year reunion because uh, I didn't want my mom and dad to be embarrassed when they, you know, when other of my classmates would go back and tell their parents and then their parents talk to my parents. So, you know, a crazy thing. I bought into the shame. It was my, it was my behavior. I should not have bought into it, but I did. But at the, but at this point, our class is so tight. They want to have reunions every year. So we still have a reunion every year. And, um, and I thought I missed the 30th and I was really sad that I didn't go. And I was kind of angry at myself that I allowed myself to not go to the 30th. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to go to the 31st. And I was working in the Pacific Northwest and I fly back down to Arizona for my 31st reunion. Now it's a casual get together. It's just, you know, they, they announce where it's going to be some bar or someplace or, and this particular place had a big outdoor seating area, big trees and fire pits and and as I drive up into the parking lot and park, I can see through the fence around one of the fire pits, I can see the jocks. And, and they were the ones that I was worried about. And it's like, oh God, because I had a lot of friends. I had a ton of friends and I'm pretty social. And I wasn't worried about seeing all my friends, but the jocks, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh God, you know? So I walked through the bar and out to the outside area and these guys are all standing around the fire and I recognized them all and um, and I said hey uh, looking for the Gerard reunion is this the reunion group here and they looked at me and they said uh, yeah who are you looking for you know someone from Gerard and I said yeah I said I'm, I'm Bobby Scopa and instantly they they kind of eyes opened up and they looked at me and they said oh my god we're so happy to see you instant hugs Mm. how come you've stayed away how come you haven't been coming we've missed you now these are these are the jocks that i was so worried about and um and they were so loving and so accepting and so kind and so then they make a point to drag me around all the little groups standing around talking to introduce me now, I didn't need that. I was quite capable of walking around and introducing myself, but they wanted to make sure that everybody said hi and that everybody was welcoming. And, um, and so I still go to the annual reunions and I went to the 40th and I, and I go every year to our little get togethers. And I love those guys that I was so worried about that they were going to be they were going to be 16 17 year old 
I, I was in my mind. I, I, I had them still pegged as sixteen-year-old mm-hmm. idiots, you know. And in reality, uh, they, uh, they, you know, they're still, they're still. <laughs> and I use this term with love and affection. They're still idiot guys, but they're kind and loving and accepting. And I can't tell you how, how blessed I feel for that. That's just got to be so great for you. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And I'm still, some of my best friends are from high school. Uh, when I spend my uh, winters in Arizona, I'm surrounded by all of my, my uh, friends that I've known since, you know, 1970. Great example of what people are capable of, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. So where are you living your life now? And are you still doing stuff with the fire service? Well, um, I write a monthly article for the Wildland Firefighter magazine. So uh, I'm so every month I put out an article and I have a, a little byline on there. It's all online magazine now. They, they switched. But yeah, I've got a byline for them. So I write an article and those articles, some of them are humorous, uh, and some of them are leadership related. Um, and so I do that. There's a fire department where I live during the summertime, a small little fire department. And I kind of am an advisor for the chief. Uh, I help him out and I, I provide some, um, I provide some uh, leadership expertise and that sort of thing for them. Um, but I spend my summers up in the Pacific Northwest. I have a boat I live on and cruise around on right now. I'm, I'm in Port Townsend, Washington in a marina. Uh, and I spend my summer just messing around on the boat. And then in the wintertime, I head down to Arizona in my old neighborhood and, and, uh, and enjoy my winters hiking around the desert. And um, yeah, so I, I have, things have worked out pretty well. Sounds like you have quite a life. It's not bad. Talk about where the motivation came to write and share your story. Well, so when I was um, getting close to retirement, um, someone suggested, I I always tell stories, you know, I'm a talker. And when I would do, uh, I do a little public speaking. Um, I was always doing public speaking for my job. And um, and teaching. And so I was always telling stories uh, because that's how I think. I think in terms of a, how a story relates to a situation you're trying to get folks to think about. And and someone said, you know, you ought to record some of your stories. And I thought, oh, that's, that's a good idea. So when I retired, I started a podcast called Bobby on Fire, uh, bobbyonfire.com. And I've had over a million stories downloaded. So it makes me laugh to think about it because I'm just, I just ramble on some story and people seem to enjoy listening to them. So I started telling those stories and then I thought, well, you know, maybe I ought to write some of those stories down. Now, none of those stories have anything to do with being trans because that's not the point. The point is, you know, entertaining folks about firefighting or teaching and giving leadership lessons. So nothing in my, any of my stories have been about being trans. And then, um, and then I thought, well, if I write a book and with, with these stories, it's really not a complete book. If I'm going to write the book, I might as well just give the whole story. And, 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 and so I started thinking more about it. And then, you know, um, 
uh, I don't know, a couple, well, not even two years ago, uh, a year and a half ago, I started writing the story and, uh, and I finished the story, got a publisher and, uh, and uh, I got a book. Fantastic. Well, you know, the fire service is still quite a bit behind law enforcement, which is way behind the rest of society and its understanding yeah. of yeah. LGBT people. For the young firefighter or EMS professional out there that's like you, struggling with who they are, uh, what's your advice? You know, that is, that is the toughest question you could ask, Greg, um, because... I don't know. I don't feel qualified. I mean, I, this may sound silly, but I don't know how qualified I feel to give anyone advice um, that is struggling with uh, being trans or uh, gay or whatever. Um, I don't know how you. I don't know how you. Uh, I don't know how the way forward should be, other than you've got to. You've got to be. You've got to preserve yourself in this with whatever way you decide to go and whatever you decide to do. You've got to be good to yourself because I think uh, for me, I know that um, I wasn't good to myself. And I, 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 I nearly, you know, I, I nearly ended my life because I couldn't live by other people's expectations anymore. And so um, I think I think there's a there's a nuts and bolts answer to your question, and I say and I give this message to young women because I've you know I've kind of been an advocate for young women and diversity in the workplace, and and that is you got to be really good at your job. If you're going to expect people to change their thinking, say about a female firefighter or about a racially diverse firefighter or about anyone else. It may be wrong, but you have to be better. You've got to be better. You've got to be a really, really good at your job. Because if you're expecting someone to accommodate you, now maybe you have every right to be accommodated. Maybe there's a legal right. Maybe there's a moral right. You shouldn't have to change yourself to be who you are. In my mind, you, you're going to have, you got to be good at your, at your job. If you want to be accommodated and people to accept you, you, you got to be good at your job, number one. Um, and, then, and then the rest can come, whatever that might look like. Um, but I don't, know, I don't know how to advise people. Um, if there's a young person who uh, is trans uh, and wants to come out, uh, man, you got to have a support system. Be going to therapy to make sure you've got some good sound because friends will tell you, you know, speaking for myself, friends will tell you what that you're great, you're wonderful, and everybody loves you, and that's all well and good. But it's good to have a professional talk to you about um, the issues we face, mm -hmm. um, and you got to have a support system, have those friends who love you no matter what, in addition to the professional therapist. Um, and beyond that, Greg, I don't know what to tell young people, but you got to take care of yourself. And don't, don't be like me who tried, tried so hard uh, to hide who I was. Uh, at the end, I was, you know, I was considering how to end my life so, so I wouldn't transition. Yeah. Reach out and get a network. 
The book yeah. is called Both Sides of the Fire Line, A Memoir of a Transgender Firefighter. Bobby Scopa, thank you so much for sharing your story with us, and good luck with the book. Thank you very much, Greg. I enjoyed the conversation. Wow, what an impressive lady, right? Pick up the book. I really recommend it. I think you'll really find it quite fascinating. I'll be back on the fourth Sunday of October with my next show. My guest is going to be Xander Morix. You might know that name. He's the young man that's leading the fight against Florida's Don't Say Gay Bill. And you are going to be blown away. He is quite impressive. Well, that wraps up our hour. Tune in next Sunday night for Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Diana Grayer. And of course, that's at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB Radio. In the meantime, do have a great week and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News in Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia. Our shows are available for on-demand play anytime on our website at OutBeatNews.com and on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and now on iHeartRadio. Find links to subscribe at OutBeatNews.com. I love to change the world, but I don't know what to Broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round. And you can't find a fighter, but I see it in you, so we can walk it out. Move mountains, we can walk it out and move mountains. For Outbeat Radio on KRCB-FM comes from listeners and from Rocky, the free-range chicken, and Rosie, the original organic chicken. Air-chilled, non-GMO, locally raised right here in Sonoma County with no antibiotics ever. More information is available at rockyandrosie.com. You're listening to 104.9 KRCB-FM Roner Park and KRCG-FM Windsor, Sonoma County's NPR station. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Beale Street Caravan is next.